Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, I've said this before, but if you're over 65, there's a one in four chance that you'll fall. And if you fall once, you are twice as likely to fall again. And if you fall and break your hip, there is a 30 to 40% chance you'll die within a year. And you won't necessarily die from the fall, but it's all the things that can go wrong, whether it's complications from surgery and infection at the hospital or being immobile and becoming depressed. Obviously, we don't want that to happen. So how do we prevent this reality and stay mobile as we age? Well, according to today's guests, Kelly and Juliet Starrett, the answer doesn't require hitting the gym. Yes, you heard me. No cardio, no strength training. Don't get me wrong, Kelly and Juliet are definitely pro-exercise, but rather than pumping iron for an hour and calling it a day, they recommend a series of simple, everyday activities that enhance your capacity for free and easy movement. Kelly is a physical therapist and Juliet is a certified precision nutrition coach, and together, this husband and wife duo are considered mobility pioneers who spent decades working with pro athletes, Olympians, and Navy SEALs. I love their latest book, Built to Move. It is an absolute must read if you want to stay mobile as you get older. And in this episode, you'll hear all of their daily movement tips that can literally save your life. Let's do it. Kelly, Juliet, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. It is so great to have you. Uh, I love your message. I love your book. It is so practical and you know, there's definitely a message here we we all need. As I was saying before the show, it seems like we're, you know, trying to focus on the frosting and all the toys and the gadgets and injections before we bake the cake, the fundamentals, and you really nail the fundamentals. So before, you know, I start, you know, going into the book, I would love to hear more about your background and your why behind this stellar work. Thank you, Jay. You want to take it? You have to understand that Juliet and I met when we were in our 20s and we were professional river runners. We were guides. We were professional whitewater athletes and ended up in this phase where Juliet was going to law school. I was going to go to physical physio school and we loved to train. We were young and you could cut off our hands and the next day they would grow back. We literally, we would regenerate every night like some kind of miraculous, uh, you know, spell was cast over our bodies. And we ended up opening a gym in the city. Uh, it was the 21st CrossFit in the world, San Francisco CrossFit. And we ran that for 16 years, sort of in parallel with the rest of our business, the Ready State. And the reason I mention that is that we spent a decade and a half helping people sort of tug at this complex Gordian knot of fitness. We suddenly had the best Olympic lifters, the best gymnasts, the best runners, the best sort of access to sort of all of the all of the tools and techniques right in the middle of really what ended up being a, a sort of a revolutionary moment, sort of uh, like the, the fitness revolution hit in the sort of mid 2000s on. And I think what we started to recognize because we had a physical therapy practice in there and we were doing a lot of consulting with every premier team, every, every team in the major league sports, Olympians, the military, was that there was a big difference between how people 
came to think about their pain and problems and the sort of medical side of something's not working. I can't do what I want to do. My foot hurts. My knee hurts. And the gym. And then also there was a huge gap between the gym and the other 23 hours of the day. And we sort of realized that we had to come to grips with trying to understand why people didn't know how to take care of their bodies. They didn't know that they were missing range of motion, didn't know how to self-soothe, didn't know how to train or eat. And then simultaneously, on this other side, we saw that people were really not doing things in the other 23 hours of the day to support fitness and to support wellness and health. They were It was like they had checked this beautiful box, this heroic box. I went and trained today, and the other 23 hours of the day were a dumpster fire. And then we'll say that that has really kind of set us up to really think about the problems of the human condition a little bit differently and then take a step back and ask, well, where are the people, who's having this conversation with people who don't like to train, who don't like to go to the gym, our neighbors, our people in our family who don't self-identify with diet culture or strength and conditioning culture, and how are we going to serve them? And I think I'll finish by saying that the pandemic was this perfect moment where Juliet and I are starting to turn 50 years old. We're seeing the sort of the collapse of people being able to take care of themselves or self-soothe or feed themselves or exercise. And at the end of that, we can take this third-party validation, which is diabetes in our communities, obesity, substance abuse, chronic pain, surgery, you know, social isolation and say, well, how's it going? How's our trillion dollar fitness industrial experiment happening? And it turns out it's not actually serving the people it's purporting to serve. So Juliet and I have, I think all of that swirling together gave us sort of a different perspective about the problem and realizing that maybe we had a unique way of trying to give people the tools and tactics in their own homes, in their own households, to be able to sort of sort out this complexity that was overwhelming them. And if I could just add a couple of layers to that from my own perspective, and, and Kelly really did a great job there, but you know, the other things that were, were and have been very influential on me is that I am, have been running two businesses for the last 20 years and raising two daughters. We share that in common, actually. And you know, I, I've seen, especially starting in about 2012, when Instagram became huge and you know, fitness influencers became a th- a thing that there's just a fire hose of information about health, wellness, and fitness. And even though I am in this space, and this is what I do both professionally and what I enjoy doing and talking about in my free time, I felt like as a working full-time working mom, there was no way that I could even begin to fit all of these things into my day. And in fact, I got really frustrated. I think one of the things that that would always be really triggering for me w- was this whole idea of the morning routine. I felt like it was um, mostly childish, childless males who were talking a lot about their morning routines and or uh, at least men who 
didn't seem to be participating in their children's mornings, I would say, um, because, you know, as a working mom, there's no time to wake up in the morning and, you know, meditate for 20 minutes and, you know, then do a breathing practice and then have the perfect coffee followed by an ice bath and a sauna and a nice long walk and a workout, right? As a working mom, you wake up and, you know, you're lucky to power down an espresso before you're getting people dressed and making breakfasts and lunches and trying to get people out the door. And the notion that you would have two hours in the morning to take care of, you know, your morning routine is preposterous and actually as a mom would make me mad. And I think layered upon that perspective, I started becoming really interested in nutrition um, in about 2015 and became certified as a precision nutrition coach. And I think that was the first time I started really thinking less about what are the right things to do, but more about how do we get people to do the things that they know they, in many cases, they know they need to do. And one of the things that was so influential about that the course I took through Precision Nutrition is that the actual amount of information on nutrition, it was 18 months I was studying um, through the program. Nutrition was talked about for like two weeks <laughs> um, because it really took this very basic principled approach that people need to be eating whole foods and, you know, well, that was kind of it. And that really the whole course was about how do you change behavior? How do you help people figure out how to slot healthy behaviors into busy lives? And so I think, you know, that, you know, sort of our background in the sort of health and fitness space layered on with being working parents and having some insight into really how challenging it is for, for people to make behavior change and really looking critically at how are we fitting these things into our lives and how can we help people figure out what to prioritize and how to fit it into their lives? hundred percent agreed. And my wife and I have, have definitely used the same example about the morning routine, the morning sunlight, uh, cold plunge, sauna, back to the plunge, the coffee, and, and then, you know, my wife seeking out a divorce attorney. That's how that's going to go with our two kids screaming. Uh, <laughs> so I, in terms of our, our modern lifestyle, I think everyone would agree we've got some problems with nutrition. That's a big one. I think everyone would agree, you know, we've got a sleep problem. We've got a connection problem. We also have a sitting and moving problem, which I, I think people understand we sit too much and people are trying to move, but can you talk a, a bit more about sitting and walking two things i think we all do every day for quite some time but i don't think we're really mindful about how we're doing them and to me i love the low-hanging fruit opportunities i'm gonna sit i know i'm gonna walk what what are we doing there that you know maybe isn't the best for us what are the opportunities the first thing we should do is start with the assumption that not everyone is in our silo so you made a couple of assumptions there that I think are actually maybe we should revisit. One is that everyone's got the message that we need to sleep more. That's actually not true. In our community of health and fitness enthusiasts, we see that everyone's like, of course, of course, you don't sleep enough. <laughs> Yet, a second you step one valence away, one standard deviation away from the, the people who are like, oh my God, when I started sleeping, my life changed, or my kids are just old enough where I'm starting to sleep again, or I have some agency in my life and I'm trying to sleep, we see that actually there is still 
persisting this idea that you don't need a lot of sleep. And it goes and it's anathema to all the research, every recommendation. But you know, recently we just had a social media post with a friend in an interview where I said, Hey, you should get seven to eight hours of sleep. And the magic really happens when you start to get towards eight. And you would think that I told people that they needed to drink the blood of their babies and and you know, like only live underground. I mean, it was so people were so personally attacked by that. Millions of views thousands of comments of the fact that how dare I approach someone and what I think you bring up this really actually I just yeah. put a little context there you know this was Kelly actually appeared on a podcast that is you know it's a big podcast but it's definitely the, the followers are sort of again like Kelly said one valence out of of you know the hardcore health wellness fitness audience and so it was really important for us to see that because we've been talking about it we've been talking about it and I think sometimes we do think that everybody has gotten these core messages but I think that that post and the reaction was really influential on reminding us that, you know, we are often, we find ourselves often in a silo of people who care and are curious about this and forget that, you know, we, we maybe haven't gotten the message out writ so large. One of the things that we're trying to do with this book, and I'll answer your question eventually, I promise, is that we want to establish benchmarks and vital signs for people. And this means that there'll be times in your life where you are not killing it physically. You ha have a physical practice from basically that when you wake up to when you go to bed, we'll call that your day. But in that day, that 24 hour duty cycle, there's a lot of agency where you can create a lot of movement choice, make different decisions. But we're going to expand physical practice, the care and feeding of the human body to encompass that whole window of which you're awake. And when we give people these benchmarks, then it allows us to begin to a objectively understand what our behaviors are. And that, that objective measurement is a key idea. I think which can be so touchy feely. Well, I took this turmeric and I feel better. Well, I'm like, can you quantify that for me? Did you, can I see your blood panel? That it's like, you know, I, we are down with belief effects. We're down with placebo. Down with we're placebo. down with like, you know, the fact that I believe you, if you feel better, I believe you, that's true. But also, Hey, let's make sure that we're, we're actually, you know, understanding what processes are and creating these lines. And one of the things that you bring up is the fact that we're seeing a real mismatch between our modern bodies and our modern environments. And I think at risk, what ends up happening is that you people are like, oh, you're, pain, you're pining for the Paleolithic era. And that is not what we're saying at all. Like I am, my greatest fear when the zombie apocalypse comes is that I'm going to get a tooth problem and die of an abscess. Like you don't understand, like that, that's how I'm going out in this world. I've, I've had enough broken teeth. I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's why I'm dead. And what we're trying to help people appreciate is that we can look through these lenses of what it are the minimum requirements for my body to do what it's supposed to do. And one of the ways that we think about this is if we work with uh, intense exercise, intense training sessions, even games, world, world champions, we'll, you know, these, these events, we can sort of say, hey, we can ascribe what we call a session cost to those big efforts. And the next day, the session cost is, hey, decreased force production, resting heart rate, your nervous system's a little fried, you weren't as strong. Like you, we can measure those things. And always, as athletes, we're trying to minimize session cost. We're trying to adapt and to recover from these big efforts. So we'll remove the words 
sport from that session cost idea. And now let's say I had a big deadline. I had a lot of stress in my life. I had a born, I, my, my mom got sick. Some, someone in my family had a surgery, had a red eye. And suddenly we can say, well, there's a real session cost for this kind of stressful event. And what we're always trying to do is say, what are the care and feeding of our bodies to reduce those session costs? Now, what we can start to say is, well, let's take a, a step back again and look at sort of global behaviors. Well, it turns out there is a session cost when you don't move very much, that when you engage in behaviors that sort of are not how the body was intended to move, and I don't mean like there's some idealized state, but ultimately what we can begin to appreciate because now we have data to support this, if I could say to you, there's a pill you could take that will reduce your all-cause mortality by 50% and you can give it to your whole family and it's free, everyone's going to take that pill. That's walking 8,000 steps a day. The research is very clear that when people walk just 8,000 steps, they get the lion's share of the benefits, not 10,000 steps, not 12,000, 15, 8,000 steps. And so what we can start to say then quickly is, how are my behaviors working towards me needing to move my body? And so we get away from this conversation that sitting is bad and standing is good to how do I encourage more movement in the day so that I can sort of wreak the benefit of all of this movement, which is protective in so many ways. And then we can get deep into the weeds on why and how and other things and aspects of this. But when we, again, take that first high level view, it allows us to really begin to ask ourselves, well, if this is important, how am I going to fit it in? And where do I do it? And what behaviors am I engaging in that's keeping my body from doing what it's supposed to do? Also, our brains and bodies are designed to move. And I think one of the things we've gotten wrong, especially those of us in the fitness space, is tell people that their one hour of exercise a day checks their box of movement and of overall health. You know, we have a lot of people who, you know, do what feels heroic. I mean, we three or four days a week. We owned a CrossFit gym, and I can tell you that you know when you go into CrossFit three or four days a week and do fifty pull-ups and Olympic lifts, and you know move your body in all the ways that are required in a CrossFit class. Number one, you're tired afterwards, and number two, you feel heroic. You feel as though, and you should feel heroic. You feel as though you have, you know, moved your body in all sorts of different planes and ways, and touched all of these different corners, and you know, the problem there though, is that we've told people that that's the sum total of the movement they need to get in their lives. It's, you know, three or four days a week of cardio and two days of strength training a week. And that that sort of checks the movement box. And it turns out to be not enough total movement in the day. And, you know, we can talk ad nauseum and probably will about how much we're obsessed with walking. Kelly touched on it a little bit, but I'll start by saying that you know, the, the, the research is becoming clear that the difference between people who have a lifetime of challenge with their weight versus a lifetime of controlled weight is not actually that one hour session in the gym. It's the total amount of movement. And so many people are, I think we've sent people the message that you've got exercise and they're doing it. They're following our recommendations and then now are understanding, wait, okay, this isn't actually working. And I'll just tell a quick story. Kelly and I were out for a mountain bike ride this morning and I have 
whenever we're out on trails and stop and talk to people who are out there biking or hiking and we run into anyone who looks older, I have this maybe bad habit of, you know, chatting them up and saying, Hey, what are you doing way up here? You know, eight miles from the trailhead and what's your secret. And we ran into a guy this morning who uh, told us it was his 80th birthday today. And I said, what's your secret? Like, you know, we're eight miles up on a trailhead here. You know, Kelly and I biked here and you're hiking. You know, what's what's the secret? And he said, my secret is I walk 3,000 miles a year. I walk six miles a day. That's my secret. And I can tell you that I ask a lot of other people out. And again, this isn't science, but people that I run into that are older, everyone I ask, what's your secret? Why are you still here? Why are you still out here on this trailhead? They say, I just have kept moving. And those people, because it's a generational difference, those people didn't go to Orange Theory. That guy I ran into on the trail probably never went to the gym once in his life. But what he did do is he moved his body and a lot. I absolutely love it. I think walking is the most underrated practice. It's something I love. Walking is bliss for me. If I don't get my 10,000 plus steps, I'm not a happy camper. Uh, I love that it's free. I love that the science is in a place where it's just undeniable, whether it's, you know, cardiovascular disease, cognitive health, you name it. I, I do want to spend what, what I think is interesting is it, it's clear walking has all these great benefits, but there are, how do we optimize walking in terms of, you know, one, timing is it is it better to walk for one long walk in the morning and another walk it in the evening or is it better to move all day long uh, is it better to move at different speeds you know with mobility uh and stability in mind how should we try to position ourselves so we're walking in a way that we get the most benefit so i'll pause there i just want to like go a little micro on walking on how we should you know obviously the memo is get more steps walk but if, we're, if we have a health forward audience, how do we focus in on that? So first of all, let's just say, let's make sure that people are actually getting the steps that they're purporting to get. That, and, and it's easy to suddenly get in the weeds on how are you going to integrate that breath practice into your walking? How do you ask back, you know, access your neuroplasticity, all, all the, th the wonderful things. So walking, yes or no. It's a useful model to understand that if your sewage system of your body is bootstrapped into your movement system. So if you know, haven't heard of your, your sewage system, that's called your lymphatic system. So your body makes three to four liters of lymph a day. It's pulling down all the old broken down cells that are normally turned over, all the proteins, all the waste products, the things that can't go out into your blood are all shuttled into your lymphatics. And that is why when you sit on an airplane for a long period of time, you don't move, you get cankles, right? So you get the swelling in your ankle. That's a backup of your sewage in your ankles. That's from what just think about. not moving enough. And one of the things that is useful then in thinking is that, oh, the way to move that, that normal waste through my body is muscle contraction. That's how it's driven. In fact, some people even call the calf the second heart because it holds so much blood and is such a large pumping mechanism for the rest of the system. Well, it's weird that the calves are somehow related to walking and that it turns out walking is the best way and easiest way to decongest. So if you want to recover from your workout more effectively, we, we recommend more walking. If you want to prepare yourself for more working out quickly at lunch, get in some steps early. So if I just waited around and I was like, not moving my body, not moving my body. Imagine I had an inch of snow falling every hour and I could wait until I had 24 hours of, of snow 
two feet of snow and then go out with my shovel and try to hit it. And that's what most of us are doing. That's actually the lifestyle that most of us are leading. We're sitting, we're sitting, we're sitting, smash it, sit, sit, sit. Or better would be, and we can learn this from even how we take care of injuries and surgeries, is that I can be moving my body more during the day, which allows me to stay ahead of the lymphatic. So if I can go out every hour with a broom, I can just sweep that inch of snow off the, the deck. I don't need a chisel, I don't need a snow blower. And so ideally, we would love for people to spread that walking out through the day. That would be the better thing. We would see better brain function. And that might mean a five-minute walk. That might mean a two-minute get up and walk around your kitchen island and just squeeze your butt and take some big breaths. You know, there's so many ways to be thinking about how I'm going to get that in. But I just want to point out one more thing that we know that people who don't walk tend not to sleep well enough. And that if we can ultimately accumulate that 12,000 steps plus, we see that it really knocks out a lot of sleeping problems. And the reason I mentioned that is that it's difficult for a busy working person to go out and say, I'm going to now go walk five kilometers or 10 kilometers or get all my steps. If I save that up for a whole thing, imagine I'm like, I'm just going to eat one meal a day, but I got to eat 16 pounds of chicken and 22 pounds of fruits and vegetables in one meal a day. You can certainly do it, but it's definitely going to have you know an impact. So we'd rather see if you can spread that out. And what you'll find is that you can aggregate a lot more movement in during the day. One of the things we've been trying to do with this book is actually help people change their mindset on the amount of time it takes to be a healthy, fit, and well person. And I do think I mentioned the one hour fitness class before, but I think we've also gotten stuck in a mentality that you have to do the these things block. in one hour blocks. And that's not the case at all. And in fact, I think if you look at anyone with a newborn or young children, you know, maybe on a good day, you can sneak in an hour of formal training. But to tell someone with a, a job and a newborn that they should sneak in one hour of training and then, oh, yeah, don't forget, you also have to block out a whole other hour to get in all your steps. I mean, there's no way that would happen. And so we're really it trying to encourage people to rethink uh, rethink the value and sort of, you know, importance of doing little movement breaks, movement snacks, short walks. You know, we've for years been champions of 10 minutes a day of mobility work. And the way I think people can think about this is in financial terms, in terms of compounding interest. You know, people often say, well, why would I do a, a mobility practice for 10 minutes? I mean, in 10 minutes, all I can do is get to my neck. And to that, we say, hey, if you start tonight on your neck for 10 minutes, and then, you know, you move downstream and, you know, hit all the tissues in your body, you can actually probably hit all of your major, major challenges in seven days in 10 minutes. And that's 70 minutes of work a week that you've done sort of of the care and feeding of the carcass that is this body that's going to carry you through life. And, and I would say the same for this walking. I mean, of course, if you have a schedule or the time to be able to walk in big blocks and can do that, I think that's great. Um, but for most people, they don't have an hour to exercise and a whole hour to walk. But you know, believe me, from my own personal experience, I can get eight to 10,000 steps in addition to doing some kind of exercise in the morning by just doing five and 10 minute walks throughout the day. So I take walking meetings, I walk to get coffee. You know, the other thing I'll say just before we move on from the subject is Kelly and I figured out that if we walk to the end of our corner and back, it's about 
18 minutes and it's 1,750 steps. And we do it often at night after dinner. So it's a nice way to digest and a really important way for us to connect and, you know, re, you know, connect with each other outside of technology, reevaluate our days. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things we're hoping, not just with this movement piece, but sort of with all of the ways in which we are conscious of caring and feeding our bodies, that it is enough to do things in five and 10 minute increments because it aggregates and is important. If I could just add, one of the reasons we're such fans of walking is that we're actually trying to recreate a better society. And if you want to actually know your neighbors, the research is clear that it you feel safe in a society and, and more connected through all the loose connections. It's not actually your deep, your best friend who lives across the street. It's the person at the local market. It's the neighbors who just see you and acknowledge you. And the easiest way to do that is actually go outside and set yourself up to actually run into your neighbor. We have a neighbor we've been battling with a fence for a long time for whatever reason. And Steve and I have to be like, what's up, Steve? What's up, Kel? Like we see each other every day and i think it just de-escalates the uh, the impending battle that's going to happen between us and that's sort of just the allegory for for thinking about you know this and and all of that aside you know we can begin to say well let's get more movement in what if i can't walk during the day juliet is standing right now at a standing desk and i'm perching so really what we're ultimately saying is how can we get your body to do more work during the day? There's a lot of ways to do that. So Juliet's going to accumulate loading and standing and movement this whole time. You're maybe sitting and I have, I'm on a bar stool with my feet on the ground and I, this is a, it's called perching. So I'm actually leaning as we sit here so that we're the same height, but suddenly that all counts. We did a little calculator a long time ago where if Juliet just does this thing, she can perch, she fidgets, she can put her foot up on something, she can dance around. She burns an additional 100,000 calories a year. I am almost twice as large as Juliet. So let me just average down. That's 180,000 calories of additional burning consumption that I make up for in cookies and ice cream. So imagine a pile of 180,000 calories of cookies here. That's what I get to eat for free without having to exercise, mind my diet, do any other thing except just don't sit all the way down and stop moving. That is incentive for me. Can I just tell you one quick story, Jason? I know that we've gone far afield on your original question, but I, I just think it's relevant to this topic and this overall Please. point we're trying to make that you can get a lot accomplished in short bursts of time throughout your day. When we had young children, Kelly invented the, and I think you'll be able to especially relate to this given what phase of life you're in. Kelly invented a workout that he called the 10, 10, 10 at 10. And it was uh, three different movements he would do 10 reps of like air squats and sit-ups and push-ups or, you know, some iteration of body weight movements um, for 10 minutes at 10 p.m. Because we were in a phase of our life where we were growing two businesses and growing two little humans. And, you know, in addition to not having a whole block to do our walking, we also often lost our chance to even do any kind of formal exercise at that phase of our life. And it's ironic given that one of the businesses we are running is a gym, but nevertheless, we would often lose our opportunity to train. And Kelly was not going to go to the Olympics with that 
10, 10, 10, and 10 program at all. But you know what? He was going to be able to touch some positions and move his body and breathe hard a little bit and get a little bit of benefit. And it turns out that at that phase of our life, that was enough. I love it. Colleen and I have had a similar experience where we've been so busy with work, we have no time for ourselves. Uh, the, the irony, given what we all do. Uh, a lot to unpack there. But before I, I, I still want to zero in on walking, but you did mention standing and it's a standing desk and something. I've experienced that I don't think I'm alone. You mentioned cankles. If I'm at a party and I'm somewhere and I'm just like stuck standing and I'm not really moving a lot, I'll get cankles. I don't think anyone likes cankles. They don't feel aesthetically. I don't care. They just don't feel good. And every once in a while, and we live in Miami, it's humid. Every once in a while, I'll get the cankles. And look, cankles happen. They're part of life. But how can we avoid that situation, whether it's a standing desk or um kind of stuck standing or maybe there's some humidity. Well, I mean, the the only way you can really cure cankles is by moving. And, you know, I, I'll tell you that I actually get up and move as much as humanly possible when I take a flight, for example. You know, I, I agree with you. Not only are they unsightly, but they don't feel good. And, you know, and your shoes get tied and they feel terrible. And you wonder and, why you have an Achilles tendonopathy, people. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, you know, the cure for the cure for cankles is more movement. And obviously, we're all going to get stuck in situations where we can't move as much as we want. But even just if you're stuck standing, a little bit of fidgeting and moving, you know, that, that actually is... Um, you know, it, it still is going to keep keep your lymphatic system turned on and moving. So just as much phys- fidgeting and changing positions as you possibly and it, can. And it gets this away from this notion that sitting is bad, standing is good. That's what we want. We want to stop that. We want to kill that. And what we want to say is moving is better. So if you have a anti-fatigue mat underneath, that's one of those squishy mats, you're having to move and readjust and pump. Juliet can put her foot up on this bar stool. There's a, we have a, you're, you can change shapes and positions. So if you find yourself sort of, you know, stuck, frozen, that's a problem. And anyway, yes, now you're above the one and a half metabolic equivalent cutoff for sedentary behavior. But once again, what you're seeing is, hey, my body is seeking this, this movement. So how can I get that in? And long periods of standing, you just need to excuse me, I'm gonna go walk to the bathroom and come back. And very quickly, you can get ahead of the, all of that. I think that's really, you know, crucial about that. And ultimately, one of the one of the ways that we want people to start to think about this is how can I shape my environment so I don't have to make another choice. So we come in and all of our desks here and workstations are standing. Again, everyone has an option to sit or perch or we can sit on the ground. So now I don't have a choice about, hey, I'm just going to sit here because it feels so good. And the environment cues me into making certain choices. I want to have more agency and control. And that really means that if we don't think about the application of manipulating our environment so we have a better outcome, it's easy to fall into this category of sedentary behavior. And Harvard defines sedentary behavior as falling below one and a half metabolic equivalents, an energy expenditure of your body like a watt, but it's for six hours. So we're really trying to say, hey, let's limit this total sedentary time during your wakeful hours to six hours. And that seems, once again, like an incredible task for people who are like, well, you know, six hours is a lot of sitting. But by the time you put in the breakfast table, the commute, the board meeting, the thing, plus you're back on the couch, having a coffee with a friend, you can blow through that six hours so fast. If you have an hour commute each way, that's two hours of sitting. So we need to be thinking, how do I reduce that session cost? 
I have to do it in the rest of the way that I shape my world. I will tell you, Jason, that we live in Northern California, which up until this year has been one of the driest places um, on earth. So we cannot speak to the humidity because we never have any. <laughs> I, I still want to come back to walking, but on sitting, you know, I, you walk through those examples and hear you loud and clear. We should, we should try to fidget. And you can do that if you're sitting down, maybe do a little calf rages, just tr try to like move around. I think the one place that's difficult is in the car and i'm curious if you're driving what can you do to try to minimize the impact of driving and for, for me like i i don't like driving part partly because of my size i mean you know we have a we have a big minivan but still like me being in a car for a long time is just not comfortable a lot of people have to commute it's a reality how, how, how can they make that easier how can they make that work for them a little bit better well, I would say there's not, I'll be honest, there's not a ton you can do while you're actually driving. I mean, unless you're worried about having like a DVT, a DVT yeah, fibrosis, I mean, you, you know, don't really need to squeeze your butt. Yeah, we certainly, if we're going on long road trips, you know, we actually bring some mobility tools and we bring a percussion device and, you know, we'll be working with that while we're doing long road trips. But if we're just talking about our, you know, day to day, week to week commutes or shorter drives, you know, the way, again, we like to think about that is that, you know, there's going to be a session cost. And so you might need to do some care and feeding of your body after the fact to sort of manage let, that second cost. An, let me give an example. Um, we work with plenty of people who have to sit for their job. Yeah. Police, fire, military. So in this situation, yeah. it was a really excellent Black Hawk helicopter pilot friend of ours who said, Hey, I'm super tall. I have to wear the, the head vision gear, the, the cockpit set up to someone who's like five, eight. He says, how do I manage this? And we showed him just a couple things he could do when he got home and out of the helicopter that just helped restore his range of motion and just sort of, you know, again, reduce the session costs. Instead of only looking at the physiology, we can start to ask, well, what are the, the implications of all this sitting? Well, it turns out if my knee is in your situation is above your pelvis because you're so tall in these average chairs, you're going to be deficient in hip extension. So we need to spend some time doing some isometrics and hip extension, mobilizing hip, hip extension, making sure that, oh, walking, that's what, hip extension. What Kelly's saying is that you need to become good friends with this thing called the couch stretch, um, which is, is a test in our book, but it's one of the ways to, you know, sort of, you know, we think of it as the antidote to sitting, right? If you think that your hips are in flexion when you're sitting and stuck sitting in a chair or, you know, in your van all the time, you know, the, the goal is to actually, you know, put some work in after the fact of the sitting. And one of those ways to do that is the couch, the couch stretch. I love that. And if I go back, you know, the, the, the why behind mind, body green, I gotta go back 14 years. I almost had back surgery. So two extruded discs in my lower back, L4, L5, S1. It was an old basketball injury from college. It was a lot of stress and a lot of flying me in a coach seat nightmare for everyone involved. Uh, <laughs> And when I finally, I worked through it and, and yoga essentially saved me from back surgery and was the inspiration behind, you know, launching, founding Mind Buddy Green. Uh, my hips were so tight and like getting my hips back to being flexible, essentially root, like I went from excru like excruciate, like walking is, is everything to me. If I don't walk, it's just, I, I'm just a bad person to be around. I couldn't, it was terrible. I could not walk. And 
all of that stress, all of that, inf- I was so inflexible in my hips. And once I worked that out with my hips, my back just, boom, gone, realigned. Yeah. There we go. So, you know, Kelly is one of the most sought after physical therapists in the world. And I think maybe people, you know, think that when they come to see him, you know, he's going to like clap his hands and have some, you know, extremely Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi level special program he's going to, you know, give to people. And it turns out when people come see him for low back pain, he focuses on three things, which are very basic, many of which people could work on, you know, on their own, on their living room floor in their home. And that is he teaches them how to breathe. He prescribes more walking and he teaches them how to mobilize their hips. And I think that that's, you know, a connection that we've been trying to make for years between actually being able to move freely in your joints and having range and having your full range of motion and, you know, maybe making the connection that, you know, the reason you feel stiff, stiff, or even have pain might be because you're lacking basic or native range of motion in your body. And it's why we split this book up into sort of two categories. We've been talking generally about sort of health practices physical practices. Uh, We could say physical vital sign like sleep, nutrition is part of there, moving. The other half of the book is about establishing benchmarks and vital signs around movement, not strength, but range of motion. And more importantly, the application of range of motion to actual movements themselves. Because when you come to me, we we just had a friend's child who is a freshman in high school, superstar baseball player, tweaked his back uh, swinging a bat. And couldn't swing a bat for three months, had a little episode again. They, and, and when I saw him, he said, I said, hey, is your back hurting? And he's like, no. And I said, great. So why are we here? And he's like, because I don't ever want to happen again. I'm like, okay. So guess what? This kid is completely deficient in anything that rhymes with hip extension. Can't get into a lunge position and hold that lunge with his butt on. Can't get into the couch stretch. And by the way, the three things that I gave him are the three things in this book. So around restoring, assessing hip extension and restoring your ability to take your leg behind you like a really fast walk. So as we've talked about walking a little bit, well, now we're actually talking about having the components to walk. Do I have the ability to take my limb through its full range and native and normal range of motion? And one of the problems with living in this little tiny movement bubble where I don't really expose my tissues to what they can, they're capable of. I'm not even talking about exercise. I'm just saying moving. Imagine if I just didn't flex my elbow for the whole day. And at the end of the day, I'm like, flex your elbow. And you're like, oh, it's so stiff. You would be so stiff if you didn't, if you kept your elbows at 90 degrees all day long. Let's do this. Just, you're not allowed to bend your elbow. At the end of the day, when you go to straighten your elbow out, you're going to feel like a hundred years old. That's your hip. That's what's going on with your knees. That's what's happening with your shoulders when you put your arms over your head. So the body and the brain are very much use it or lose it. The problem is, and we oftentimes don't have physical practices that allow us to touch some of these shapes. We think sitting on the ground, we should talk about is a foundational practice that allows you to explore some of these positions and shapes every day while you're watching TV. Turns out you do a lot of ground sitting and mobilization and and positioning in yoga, for example. And yoga and Pilates are two practices 
that enable people. You could actually think of those as sports. I do yoga. That's a sport. And what we oftentimes realize is that that sport is asking of you to do stand on one leg, take some big breaths in some weird positions, generate and, and expose yourself to these positions and shapes. It turns out that just sometimes doing a sport alone isn't enough. You may need to mobilize. You may need to strength train to become better at the sport. But that sport is pretty complete when it comes to at least asking you to do what your body should be able to do. My hip has to go in extension. It has to go in flexion. I have to round my back and extend my back. I have to rotate and turn my head. Oftentimes, we can go weeks and weeks and weeks without ever touching those positions. Then I go play pickleball and I wonder why the system doesn't work. Well, and you know, one of the things we've been trying to do our entire professional lives is get people to care about their range of motion, <laughs> which is no small task. Let me just tell you, there's tell tens you, of dollars in this. There's business. tens of dollars it's in the this worst business. business ever. And, you know, the, and I, I'll tell you, most people find us and, you know, sort of realize the importance of it only after they've been injured and are no longer able to do the thing they like, the things they like to do with their body. But, you know, one way that I hope people can start to think about this and, and hope people can start to care about their range of motion is, you know, first of all, you, you mentioned the back, the back pain issue and the pain issue. I think people often don't make a connection between their feelings of stiffness and potentially even pain and range of motion. So that's number one. But the second point I'd like to make is that, you know, if you think of your physical capacity, as a wide hallway and it, within that wide hallway and we're not talking about your vo2 max in the no hallway. when you're 21 years old your your hallway is so wide you can jump on a mountain bike or pick up a new sport or new activity and you're you know not worried about falling or hurting yourself or getting injured or feeling stiff you know you just have this wide open hallway and i think what we all start to see as we age is that the hallway starts to narrow a little bit whether that's you can't run anymore because you hurt your knee or you you know you've lost some of your balance it, it's a variety of things but you know the goal for all of us is to keep that hallway as wide open as movement possible choice. to have movement choice because it turns out that people want to continue to be able to do the things they want to do physically for as long as they can but in order to do that you've got to keep an eye on your range of motion you have to be able to do things like get up and down off the floor you have to have some hip mobility you have to be able to put your shoulders over your head and your knee behind your butt there's some basic things and so you know i think if people start to think about their physical capacity as a wide hallway. Those of us who are, I just turned 50 this year, I already have some ways in which I can see my hallway is constricted a little bit at 50. And so the goal is to keep your hallway wide open. And so in, in order to do that, you've got to care about your range of motion a little bit, and you have to be willing to put 10 minutes a day of work into maintaining it and restoring it if you've lost it. So on that note, you know, look, everyone needs to walk. But how, but how do we know if we're walking in a way that is going to yield the most health benefits in the long term? Like, what should that feel like? As, as we think about range of motion, stability, assuming we're pain free, we don't have, you know, uh, skeletal issues. What, what should walking feel like? What should we try to focus on? We already said that the first practice is to start walking. Then you can start to dress this thing up. You can walk quickly. You can walk up hills. We're huge fans of something we call rucking, which is a fancy term for putting- Carrying something heavy. Carrying something in a <laughs> backpack and loading yourself in a slightly different way. One of my coaching heroes is a coach named Franz Bosch. 
who is an elite sprinter coach. He coaches uh, a lot of high level rugby. He's just really is uh, a Dutch genius, but he has this idea. He says, there's more variation in waltzing than there is in sprinting. And on the surface, you're like, hmm, very Dutchism. I appreciate that. What does that mean, Kelly? What it means is that when we move slowly, it really doesn't matter how we move. Our bodies are immensely capable. And so we don't need to worry so much about how we're walking. It's more important that if we start to run or move very fast, then there is more technique demand. But walking actually doesn't require very much range of motion. You know, should we walk up hills? Yes. Should you walk down hills? Yes. If you have access to that, should you be on un uneven surfaces? So you're not just walking on a smooth pavement? Yes. If you had access to that. So what we can start to say is, boy, I can really make that walking very rich and I can really add in a lot of complexity. When I used to walk my daughters to school on the way back, I did this thing where I would just do breath holds, that I, a breath holding technique that I learned from the French free diving world champions, which was take a 10 second inhale, hold it as long as you can, die, and then recover nose only until the top of the next minute. And I would be walking, like feeling like I was going to vomit or pee myself or black out. And those walks became very, very intense. This is just me walking home from elementary school. No big deal. Working on my breath holds and CO2 tolerance. So there's a, you know, we just went on a Mother's Day walk with uh, Juliet's mom. And Juliet carried a 30 pound ruck. So there's so many ways to make this interesting, but I don't think we need to worry about it. What I would say is that your feet should be pointed straight. If you get your feet pointed straight, when you decide to want to run or go faster or have more, you'll see that you have more movement choice. And that's one of those things where we say, hey, we like to always teach to the highest levels of the expression of the movement or expression of the body. But if you're taking breathing through your nose, walking with your feet straight, using poles if you need them. It doesn't matter. The real thing is let's get out there going and then we can layer on the, the complexity. And I'll point out that again, through the lens that we're busy people, we don't necessarily always drop down and do our 20 minute breath spin up. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do our Wim Hof in the morning. We rode the bike this morning and I did tons of conscious, intentional breathing, the same kind of breathing that's in our book and this practice during the warm ups to the trail. So I was on my bike working on this breathing practice sort of thinking about consciously adding in nose only here, recovering all those things as I was doing something else. And that, Kelly makes the point uh, that, you know, one of the critical things we tried to do in this book is show people where and how they can fit these behaviors into their lives. And one of the ways we suggest people do that is by stacking behaviors. So again, we haven't been able to figure out a way to add a formal breathing practice into our days, but we really are fans of breath work and think it's an extremely important part of our overall health and wellness. So what we do, as Kelly said, is we work on it during our warmups when we're working out or when we're riding our bikes or, you know, even just something as simple as making sure we're nose only breathing on a whole entire walk. You know, just those little details have allowed us to sort of make sure we're checking the box on things we think are important without, again, having to do one more thing. I love it. You know, we breathe 17 to 30,000 times a day. It's one of those things. It's a non-negotiable. You kind of have to breathe anyway. If you don't breathe for more than a few minutes, unless you're, you know, a peak physical condition, you're probably going to die. So to just focus on nasal breathing doesn't really require 
extra time, if you will. So no brainer. Um, I, I love it. And look, I love your book. Uh, I, I think it's very practical. It's grounded in science and your experience is tremendous. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned I've, I've been curious about, because, you know, we live in Miami now, so we're playing pickleball. Pickleball is all the rage. And then I, I hear, I, and then you hear, you know, oh, everyone's getting injured. And, and, and you know, my, my theory is it's because, you know, you got a lot of people playing who are probably sedentary and can't even rotate. But like, what's your take? Why is everyone getting injured at pickleball? You've nailed it. Yeah, you've nailed it. I mean, we have a lot of people who are just coming off the couch um, or they've been doing things like pelotoning only or just running, you know, where they're just doing something in a single direction or a single position. So it's chances are their workout regime outside of pickleball is sort of very linear. And then they, they move into a sport where they have to, you know, cut and run and sprint and have these little quick movements. And, you know, oftentimes, again, you know, even if they have some kind of other exercise practice, they're probably doing it straight off the couch. And speed likely, kills. And likely most of those people have not, you know, found the religion of spending 10 minutes a night working on their soft tissue and their mobility so that they're actually prepared to play a sport like pickleball. And if we took a physical therapy view, suddenly we're like, hey, you don't eat enough protein. There's no micronutrients. Your collagen sucks. You have poor material. You slept four hours last night. Right? Your body can't handle the loads and change in directions. Then we can look at your behavior. Well, how have you prepared your... Do you even jump rope? No. So you just thought you'd lunge and cut at high speeds for three hours and you'd hope that would work out? Well, I did it when I was 17. Ah, uh, there it is. You know who never gets injured playing pickleball? All the adults who are in those small soccer pickup games everywhere and er there's so much lateral movement cutting. You know who doesn't get played cut uh, injured in pickleball? People who play tennis. And really, we start to see that there is poor on-ramping, poor exposure. If we just take the average adult and have them run a suicide, a little gasser on a tennis court, they die. They can't even change direction. So I'm like, okay, those are the components to this sport, but we've sold it as, and this is our fault. This is our industry go outside and play right and oh no no all you did was oh, you did your one hour of elliptical and you thought that that was going to prepare and you load your tissues it wasn't so yeah the founder of crossfit said a long time ago you fail at the margins of your experience what we should be thinking then is well i had a little tweak i wonder what my physical practice needs to look like there is i told you my one of my greatest fears which i've never even mentioned before dying of an abscess tooth. Like, I think that's really, but my other biggest fear as a physical therapist is I'm going to tear my Achilles. And every physical therapist who hears that is like, oh yeah, that's real. Because what we know is, man, if you tear this Achilles, it's the strongest, biggest tendon in your body. That is a pain in the ass and it's easy to go fast. I now jump rope every day because I am trying to make sure that I am springy and I'm maintaining my springiness and I'm loading my feet in a whole bunch of different ways during my warm up to do something else. I, I was gonna ask you that about specifically because as an ex-basketball player, the Achilles was like the injury that every, and I think we've gotten better there. Athletes have recovered, but that was one you always dread. And as I think about, you know, pickleball and just running around, that's the one I'm always like, I, I just don't want it, this to happen. I think it's very hard to come back from. With that said, you you mentioned jumping rope. I do want to spend time on jumping rope, but what are the things we can do if we're active to like, obviously being responsible and don't do anything, you know, big umbrella statement, don't do anything stupid, but like avoid an Achilles injury. 
we've hinted at a ton. One is making sure that your feet are strong. And the best way to load your feet is to use them a lot. And that means walk and even walk barefoot, but walk, let's, let's walk. actually get you loading yeah. and decongesting your feet. Second, are you sleeping? There is a direct correlation to the amount of sleep you have and the likelihood of you being injured, whether it's decreased motor control or increased cortisol or whatever the mechanism is that you care about. Turns out sleep and injury go hand in hand together. Whether if you're a man in his 40s and 50s who doesn't sleep and drinks a bunch of alcohol and is super stressed, well, let's go ahead and cut you in half and look at your testosterone, look at your growth hormone and look at all these other factors and you have, haven't eaten any collagen or anything that rhymes with that, you don't even get enough protein, you've set yourself up to have tissues that are not going to be as robust, especially as we already hinted. Especially at speed. At speed. That speed <laughs> is that factor. So we want to make sure there's a reason that the Russians have an old saying, when you stop jumping, you start dying. It's because the springiness has to be maintained. You can be a power lifter your entire life because it's slow motion lifting. You cannot be an Olympic lifter your whole life unless you work on that speed component and maintain it. So we can really start to ask, what are we going to do there? Then we can say, well, do you have access to your range of motion? Because if you don't have ankle range of motion, because you don't ever squat all the way down, you don't ever use your ankles in a full way, then at when you have to come at that ankle range of motion with speed, you're going to solve that problem by collapsing your foot and going around the issue. And now your Achilles is pulling off axis. It doesn't work like an Achilles. You're acting, asking to work like a demi Achilles. You know, if we look at where like Kobe tore his Achilles, it was on a step back, where he's stepping back. That's loading your Achilles and heel cord in warrior two that's what that is or warrior one and what you see is man there's a reason we have to put that achilles under load when the leg is straight and we're in a lunge position that's downward dog if you can't downward dog and aren't downward dogging that's a good indicator that you don't have enough achilles to take that sprint interesting you're bringing me back to my basketball days days you know springiness suicides gassers nightmares so but, but something I remember doing, so when I was 17 at a third degree ankle sprain, it was brutal, worse than a break. And I, and I came back, came back too early, regret it. But, but I remember like doing the alphabet to this day, like range of motion, alphabet, A, B, C. Such a dumb waste of time. Really? So I, I got to show you my ankle. You'll look at it and say, yeah. Well, well, hey, look, it's not a dumb waste of time if you just had a trauma and I need you to move your ankle in a whole bunch of ways, right? That's, that's what it is. That's babysitting. But is that helpful for mitigating risk for like the... No, that's a, re that's a low level rehab exercise. Interesting. So it doesn't help at all rotating the ankle, like getting... The oh, yeah, that helps. But do that while you're jump roping or doing yoga or, or something else, right? Not, not when your foot is in the... in With not loaded. You're not even loading the foot in that position. So you're not even giving context to the tissues that need to be loaded. And so on that note, I, I do want to spend... We have a lot of, a lot of people who practice yoga. You mentioned down dog. Can we focus on that for a moment to like... What should we be looking for where we're doing down dog? Well, we want you to know we snuck in down dog into the book. <laughs> so if you're sitting on the ground, which we want everyone to do for 30 minutes tonight, when you get home, when you're watching TV and chilling, we want you to sit on the ground and you're long sitting, that's down dog. 
That's just, we've just removed the arm position out of down dog. But then we also have this thing called the wall hang because we are obsessed with you going overhead. And down dog basically takes two, what we call archetypes, two fundamental positions of the body, long sit or hinge, and having your arms over your head. There's a reason why those things are coupled together because the average person is terrible at putting their arms over their head and terrible at maintaining that long sit position. And what we third aspect of down dog, which is so amazing is that people get in that position and they're holding their breath. We need you to tell your brain that these positions are so valuable. We're going to spend a long time there and take big breaths there. One of the easiest ways to restore what your body is able to do is to get into a position you are valuing or trying to restore and make sure you can access your breath in that position. Nerves are king of the breath. The breath is king of the brain. And if you can't breathe in a position, you don't own that position. So that's what's so powerful about spending some time. You could spend time in downward dog every day for the rest of your life and only be better for it. And also you mentioned jumping rope. I'm a huge fan of jumping rope. Is that something we should all be doing daily for, for how long? How do you think about the different ways to jump rope? Let's just spend a moment on that. We are huge fans of jumping rope and we cannot emphasize enough how important it is. One of the things we like so much about it, though, is it's so accessible. Anybody can buy a $5 jump rope at Big Five or wherever their local you know, gym or sporting goods store is. So it's it's universal and acceptable and accessible for everyone. And you know, I don't know that we have a prescription for how much you should do it. You know, our view is that you should be doing some on the regular. The way that Kelly and I really incorporate jump roping into our lives, again, thinking of stacking behaviors, is that we often use it in warmups. And critically, we work with a lot of youth sports teams and help try to help, you know, the, the youth industrial sports complex has gotten gigantic at this point. And often youth coaches are really good at coaching their specific sport, but, you know, often don't have a lot of support and education on the peripheral things like how to warm kids up and, you know, how to make sure kids are touching all these positions before they get, you know, into doing things at speed and, you know, in serious competition. But one of the ways that we recommend every youth sports team warm up is with a jump rope. It just has universal benefits and you can actually get warm and sweaty. You know, it warms up your shoulders. It's good practice for your Achilles and your ankle range of motion. You can do breath hold work in there. Breath hold while you're doing it. So, you know, again, we don't have a prescription, you know, every so often in, in the CrossFit style workouts we do, we actually have jump roping as a feature of the workout, but that's rare. We mostly fit in our jump roping in the five or 10 minutes we have to warm up before we work out. In the book, we do have a section on jumping. And for people who can't jump or have family members who can't jump, you can hold onto a sink or a counter and you can just bounce. Just stay on your toes, but just have your heels cup and bounce. And it turns out, wait for it, not only do we get a lot of arousal for the brain, so it's a quick way to wake up, but also moves your organs around. By the way, you're supposed to do that. It gets your liver to bounce. It gets all these all these tissues in your trunk to move. It, it moves all the lymphatics. It's really important for digestion to be actually, it's one of the things we're supposed to get for walking is we're getting this organ mass complex in our, in our viscera to move a little bit. A simple template that you might just take with if you're listening, we want 200 single jumps, toes together. You should be able to squeeze your butt. You don't have to squeeze your butt. You should be able to squeeze your butt. And then do 200 jumps like that. And then 100 jumps on your left foot and 100 jumps on your right foot. And then at the very least, I'm like, you've jumped. And I'll tell you what, 
I bet you can't do a hundred jumps on your right foot, a hundred jumps on your left foot. I think you're going to be weak sauce and you're going to be surprised that that's what I ask all my 12 year olds to do. I started jumping rope again about six months ago. It's been a long, it was like 25 years, long time. And wow. Your rope is 19 feet long, so it's a big deal. I had to get an extra long rope and the whole thing, you know, for me, it's a little bit more challenging, but like, wow, I forgot, like, this is a workout. This really is. Well, it shouldn't be a workout. It can be. It was, but it's, it's, if you're going fast. We have people, you know, we get real tight and do quick jumps. We do long jumps. We, it gives us context for jumping and it gives us a lot of coordination training, allows everyone to know where straight up is, which I think is really important. And the jumping mechanic, landing mechanic really teaches us to jump and land with our full foot and use that full available energy to spring. It's, it's one of those systems that, you know, I saw some really technical research that a lot of the bone density signaling that we get happens quickly in like five or 10 minutes. The first sort of all the calling that we're going to get from bone density has already happened. So it would be great if we had lots of little exposures of that bone density. And it turns out jumping rope is one of the best ways you can fire up all the mechanisms of bone density, not walking, not but jumping. It's also a component of having a durable body. And I think we, you know, haven't had a chance to talk about why we're obsessed with the, what a durable body means versus longevity. And I think I suspect you'd agree with us that we don't really care how long we live, but we do care that for as long as we're alive, we have as much physical and mental capacity as we can possibly have, you know, but Kelly and I have no desire to live to a hundred if the last 10 years of our life are in bed in a skilled nursing facility. And, you know, uh, among all the other things we've talked about, talked about jumping is a fundamental skill and one of the ways to make sure you have a durable body as you age. 100% agreed. And I would add, and you got to have fun too. You want to have fun when you're 100 too. You got you to have fun. I mean, I think that's another important thing that, you know, you bring up and why jump roping is also important is, you know, we have sort of lost this narrative about the importance of play. And it's one of the reasons actually back to pickleball, why I think it's so important and awesome that it's become so popular. Because I think for years we sent people into the gym and onto their Pelotons and, you know, it's it was lonely and austere and not very exciting and wasn't playful or fun at all. And so anytime we can add in anything that, you know, both helps our body be durable and is playful and fun is like a gigantic win for, you know, humans, I think. I, I love it. I agree. In, in closing, I'm curious if you have a view in terms of our focus as we age by decade, you know, are there certain things in our 20s maybe pay more attention to and then our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and so on, like as we evolve, as we age, like are there certain practices, modalities, or things we should focus on are more or less the same. The things that we give in this book are the same conversations we have with our elite athletes, world champions. I'm talking about the most famous athletes you've ever heard of. These are the conversations we have so they don't miss the basics. We, we try to really illuminate blind spots for this athletic population. So if you're a 23-year-old world champion, this is our this is our foundation template that you're getting here. You're not getting some stripped down, watered down thing. Are you moving? Are you sleeping? Are you? What are your range of motion minimums? How are those things changing? As you age, the first way that I would look at it is you have less tolerance for silly bullshit. You 
probably can't drink as much as you'd like to drink. You have to sleep more. You, your body will not respond. You have to become a person who eats like an adult, where you eat real food, you don't eat like a spoiled teenager who's having a tantrum. You can't do that and expect the same things to happen. Physically though, the only thing I would say, because muscles and tissues are like obedient dogs, is that you probably won't be able to handle as high a volume and be able to recover as quickly. You may have to pull some of the speed components out to your lifting. So instead of push pressing, you're pressing. You have to just slow. Instead of a dynamic kipping pull-up, you win strict pull-ups. Instead of power cleans, you're getting front squats. So we pull out some of the speed components, which allow us to manage our range of motion and sort of give honor to our tissues. But on the whole, the only thing that happens, generally the only thing that needs to change is that these things that are nice to have become must have. I would add that in my view, having muscle on your body is like the equivalent of like taping gold bars all over your body as like you age and having Check muscle out the mass gold on this is so girl. important. And, you know, as someone in their fifties and, you know, going into my sixties and understanding what the science is about, you know, age related muscle loss, I would say for anyone in their twenties and thirties, and especially women, because we haven't really valued this for body composition reasons and otherwise that strength training is strength and re resistance training in our 20s and 30s and 40s is mission critical and for any women who are approaching in or postmenopausal having muscle mass and strength training is especially critical so you know in addition to the things Kelly said i would say keep an eye on your muscle mass and your strength so training and treat highlight. it treat it like it is literally gold that we see a, a generation of particular women athletes who've been endurance based and they use that for a whole lot of reasons, really good at it, but also help them cope with all of the weird societal pressures to look a certain way. And th suddenly the thing doesn't work very well anymore is that the, we're seeing decreases in bone density, potentially not a lot of muscle to be had in those long, slow aerobic efforts, you know? And so we really have to say, well, what are the essential ways to do that? So just, you know, recognizing that it's complex because a lot of times people are exercising to look a certain way. And I think that's value. And I totally respect that and understand that, but that is not the same thing as saying, this is the practice that allows me to become the most durable person as I age. hundred percent agreed. It's something that Colleen and I talk a lot about the, you know, there's that crazy statistic. I know, you know, for over 65, there's a one in four chance you fall. If you fall once, you're twice as likely to fall again. If you fall and break your hip, there's a 30 to 40% chance you die. And it's not because necessarily breaking the hip, it's, you know, the complications from surgery, the infection, the depression from being immobile. And, you know, what do you want? You want one, you want the mobility and the stability. So maybe you don't fall or you can break your fall. And then two, you want the armor, you want the muscle mass. It is. You want to be able to take the hit, right? You it, want to have the... And the, the hits are coming. Yeah. And the, the durable body is, you know, one that has as much range of motion as it can have and as much muscle mass as it can have. And That's everyone, a durable body. Everyone who's listening, the number one reason that people under 65 end up in ERs is falls. So 
the reason people end up in the ERs in the first place is falls. The reason it kills us is that we can't take the falls anymore. So it's not like we stop falling. It's just that we don't handle the falls as well. It is. And it's something, you know, it's changed. I, you know, yoga saved me from back surgery. So I went all in on yoga and I kind of put resistance training in the back seat. I, I hated doing legs. So like when I was done playing basketball in college, I'm like, I'm done with legs. Like never, never going to happen again. And then I, I've shared this before on the show. I had this like funny moment uh, about a year ago and I noticed I lost a little weight. I'm like, I don't get it. Like my hair, you know, everything feels the same. And I looked in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, I got old white man's ass. I'm losing my, my butt. I'm 48. It's happening. It's happening. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, duh. I haven't done legs in 25 years. I walk a lot, but like I started to do legs again, you know, it's coming back. And it was very real sarcopenia. If, if you, if you make it, to your 80s, like you're that lucky. Half the population is living with it. And who wants to be weak and vulnerable and not having that quality of life? And you can certainly put on muscle in your 80s, but we're going to take a lot of steroids. It's a lot harder. A lot of technique. It's even, I've had to work so hard and I'm in like pretty good shape at 48 this year. I put on five pounds of muscle mass in about five weeks, but I worked my ass off. And you had to eat to do yeah. it. Yeah. And the protein. I need the protein too, obviously. If people just left this thinking like, make sure you have muscle mass so that you can keep it as you age and make sure you keep and don't lose your range of motion. Keep your an eye on your range of motion so that you have that wide open hallway of physical capacity to do the things you love to do. Like those two things would really change people's lives and aging process. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is built to move for you, for you guys watching on YouTube. I love this book. Everyone should go buy it. Uh, it is extraordinarily practical and it's kind of the book we all need right now. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, hey, Jason.